quick note to our listeners. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. We understand that the future may look a little different now, but we still want to share these passionate conversations. This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Chef Dan Barber joined us as our scholar-in-residence during the 2020 Taste of the South event with the Southern Foodways Alliance. Today, you'll hear his talk from the event where he challenges us to think about food and the hospitality industry in new ways. Jane Jacobs loved her neighborhood. She lived in Greenwich Village in New York City in the 1960s. Her neighborhood was made up of many different kinds of businesses and many different kinds of people. Jane saw that it worked. She saw that it flourished because it was chock full of diversity. Where sociologists saw a frenetic and haphazard neighborhood, Jane saw a dynamic organic order. Where politicians saw rundown old buildings, she saw opportunities for young businesses to get a start. Where urban planners saw confusion and ugliness, Jane saw an ecology of appetites. But Jane had a problem, and it was a big one. His name was Robert Moses. Robert Moses built more parks, beaches, parkways, and thundering expressways than anyone else in any city's history. If you have visited New York City, you have driven down, walked through, sat in, or sailed into something that Robert Moses created. He did it by destroying the kinds of neighborhoods that Jane Jacobs loved. He found them old-fashioned and inefficient. He leveraged the law to tear down old buildings. He dismantled the city's shared commons to build highways and towering apartments. And then in the 1960s, at the very height of his power, he planned to do just that in Manhattan. An expressway through Jane's neighborhood through Washington Square Park, and then a major highway through Soho. To everyone that mattered, from City Hall, to the Municipal Arts Society, to the American Institute of Architects, this was a great idea, an expressway, through Greenwich Village. I often think about this on my walk home from my restaurant, Blue Hill, with my daughter, Edith through Washington Square Park and up Fifth Avenue into the heart of Greenwich Village following the contours of this very nearly built expressway. We are, Edith and I and my family, and the restaurant and really anyone who has ever walked the streets of Greenwich Village, the beneficiary not only of Jane's vision, but of her determination and her fight. Because Jane was an activist. I'm tired of people doing stupid things, she used to say. <laughs> but it was her writing and her storytelling that it was her most powerful protest. She showed how diverse neighborhoods, given the support, self-organized 
and prospered. She mobilized the community to speak out against the idea that city planners had the right to dictate from up high. Jane won, which was impossible to have imagined back then. But her biggest win is that today, we cannot imagine her having lost. Nowadays, no one wants to build expressways through small, diverse neighborhoods. Today, it's common sense. But in the 1960s, it wasn't. Two post-war planners like Robert Moses and just about everyone else in government and in business, cities needed a redesign, a master plan for the future. Above all, they needed efficiency and order, streets that should become machines to move cars, not people, housing that should value uniformity over identity. Robert Moses and his vision, this master plan for my neighborhood, Greenwich Village, came to mind a few months ago on a visit to the Salinas Valley. Thanks to ideal weather and extraordinary soil, Salinas is considered one of the richest agriculture areas in the country. It calls itself the salad bowl of the world. And rightfully so, most of the year, nine out of every 10 bowls of salad we eat come from this narrow strip of land. So there I was driving from the airport into Salinas, the valley, an endless carpet of lettuce. Make that two carpets, romaine and iceberg. <laughs> Giant chemical sprayers roam the fields, large trucks lined up at distribution centers. All of it amounted to a factory that transformed fields into boxes of bagged lettuce. But what really grabbed my attention were the plants themselves, the tens of thousands of rows surrounding me in this mystifying, almost military-like uniformity. I crouched down between the rows at one point to get a closer look, and I swear I felt like I was on another planet. Not a leaf out of place, no rips, no insect holes, no color variations. It's as if these lettuces were not the product of sun or soil or insects or water. You could be forgiven, in fact, for thinking that they were manufactured, pre-programmed. And in many ways, they are. The seed itself is a kind of software that dictates the exact size of lettuce, too long or too short by a centimeter, and it won't fit in the box. If it doesn't fit in the box, it won't fit in the shipping crate. And if, it, if the shipping crate is not full, it won't stack on the delivery truck or the rail car. So there it is, lettuce, the most eaten fresh vegetable in the United States of America, is engineered to fit a box. And it's not just lettuce and it's not just boxes. Squash, beets, barley, and nearly everything we eat in this country, and increasingly around the world, is designed for efficiency. Diversity is out. We think agribusiness controls the food system, but when it comes to harvesting, distribution, processing, and the shelf space at your supermarket, seeds muscle it all into position. Modern varieties and their powerful little blueprints are not just part of the problem, they are the problem. And since seeds determine how we eat, we ought to be alarmed by the current architects. Today, 
four chemical companies control more than 60, more than 60% of the world's seeds. Now, how did that happen? How did chemical companies, and just four of them, come to control the future of the world's seeds? And by extension, the world's food. Their methods remind me of Robert Moses. Like Moses, they amassed enormous power. And just as Moses tore down old tenements to build highways, seed companies uprooted ecologies and replaced them with monoculture. They argued that advances in seed technology would take care of feeding a growing population. They argued that diversity is inefficient. In this, they have been wildly successful. And like Moses, seed companies use laws to accomplish their goals. They actually help create new laws like patent protections, which now allow corporations to own life, something that was unthinkable not that long ago. These patents take away from far farmers' freedom to save seed, which is something farmers have been doing, of course, for 10,000 years. In the name of progress, they dismantle our shared commons. So it starts to look like this. Companies cannot own onions or cauliflower, carrots or tomatoes, but they can and they do own the genes for bitterness in onions and the genes for sweetness in grape tomatoes and the genes for the whiteness of white cauliflower and the purpleness of purple carrots. There is even a patent for something called pleasant tasting melon. That's the patent for it. Which means that they can not only get to own taste, they get to define it too. If you think all of this sounds completely freaking crazy, I agree with you, it is. And here's the worst part, the real tragedy of the whole thing. None of it tastes good, not one thing. How do we circle out of this? How do we create a whole new set of vegetables and grains that will not only withstand the challenges of the future, but do it deliciously? This is the moment that I shiv from my company, row seven. We started this company a year and a half ago, but in many ways, it was launched 10 years ago when I had a conversation with this guy, Mike Mazurek, who is a plant breeder at Cornell University. He came for dinner at Blue Hill, a group of breeders from Cornell. But I was struck through the waiter who was having conversations at this table. that This was a very curious uh, scientist, plant breeder, who was asking questions that were very, very similar to what chefs ask about ingredients. And so at the end of the meal, I brought Mike into the kitchen. It was very late at night and I didn't actually have a lot to say to him. And he was standing there and there was a cook that just happened to be prepping a butternut squash, the workaday squash that we all know quite well, the, the largest selling squash in the United States by 85%. And I said, Michael, if you're such a great squash breeder, because his expertise was in cucurbits and squash. You're such a renowned now squash breeder, up-and-coming squash breeder. Why don't you breed a butternut squash that actually tastes good? <laughs> yeah, a little provocative. <laughs> in New York, we don't, we don't circle around the things like you do here. And, I, and he looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. And he looked at me and he said, in all my years of breeding, 
no one has ever asked me to select for flavor. And it was just, that was it. Lights out, you know, curtain down, lights out. I think there was a before and after for me as a chef. Um, because what I realized in that moment is that breeders are the architects and that, that seeds are these blueprints. And it's the blueprints for the entire food system. And if he's not talking to anybody who cares or recognizes or is pushing for flavor, who is? And that in and of itself is why we started Row 7, the seed company. I brought from New York this morning uh, the prototype of the, of the new butternut squash that we've been test driving in the kitchen now this whole season. Uh, it's called 898, and there it is on the right, so that butternut squash on your left, but on the right is this thing. Uh, and what, what Michael did in answering the call of why can't you produce a butternut squash that tastes good, he shrunk the butternut squash by about 70%. Uh, he forced out a, a ton of water, uh, and he increased the deliciousness, not to mention the nutrition, by about a thousand percent. I think I don't want to overpromise because. But what I want, what I want you to taste is is this squash that is that is unplugged. This is naked. We haven't um, we haven't added salt or pepper or butter or cream or milk. Nothing. Zero. Zero. And when I asked him. Why aren't you creating a butternut squash that actually tastes good? Why, why do we as, as home cooks and chefs, why do we have to add maple syrup and brown sugar and, and everything else just to eke out the flavor of squash? Why can't we just start with a seed that actually produces the flavor that you're tasting? So that is completely unplugged. I roasted it last night uh, after service and pureed it in a blender. Zero, zero added to it. And a good example of the power of breeders in this process for our food system, for a food system that we all are here to, to change and advocate for. And the message from just a taste of that, I think, is that we need to start with the seed. You're, you're, that's a picture of uh, trialing this 898, which we're still doing. We called it 898 because it's still in, in selection and we are, are sort of like the, the iPhone every year. We're going to be <laughs> Uh, introducing a new variety that, that is an improvement on the old variety, which is in the spirit of the company, is that it, and in the spirit of what I think where breeding needs to go, which is, which is not to genuflect over something that's old and set, but to look at seeds as dynamic and as, as uh, ultimately changing as we uh, continue to improve the seed and as we continue to introduce it to different regions and make it more adaptable for environments and for cultures. Uh, but this is our, our really first attempt. Uh, and our hope is to, to get this into, now this is now picked up by Walmart and Kotzko. So next year, this will be in the big food chain, which, yeah, which is great. Yeah. I had, I would love, I, and I accept the applause, but I had so little to do with it except to ask this crazy off the cuff question is why don't you breed it? And his, Responsibly, no one has ever asked, and he did it on his weekends and spare time, and this is the result. So it's it's it is amazing what breeders can do if we're sanctioned to, to if we sanction them to do it. Uh, and that piece of bread that you're eating is from uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Steve Jones, who's uh, at Washington State University, and who also doesn't understand why we accept wheat without flavor. Why do we covet white flour that absolutely has no flavor and no nutrition? 
And can we take old varieties of wheat, which are phenomenally distinctive from region to region, super nutritious, uh, and can we take those genetics and marry them to new varieties of wheat to create wheat that can produce very well, similar to this squash, but also give you the flavor and the nutrition. So what we did with the wheat is it's 100% uh, of this new variety we call Barbara wheat. Uh, uh, as you can tell, I'm not shy about uh, <laughs> I didn't fight it when Steve said, let's call it Barbara wheat. <laughs> I, I brought, I, I, I sort of yented these, these two parents together uh, to create Barber Wheat, so I should take some credit for it. I don't know if it's as much as I do here, but uh, uh, it's an old variety uh, of wheat called Aragon 3 that was, that was married to a newer variety that Steve married to a newer, actually sort of menaged a twatted with a couple other varieties, and we got, we got the Barber Wheat, and that, that's what his fields look like at, at WSU. He's one of the leading wheat breeders for the, the future of wheat in an organic and very diverse system that with tons of different flavors and, and responses to different environments that are really a thrill to be a part of. Uh, and so I wanted to share wheat that was a, a, a slice of bread that is 100% barber wheat with water and salt. There's nothing, nothing else added. That's it. Yeah. And, and the reason that it can withstand 100% whole wheat so it's not bitter and it's not heavy is because it was bread with Steve to be meant for 100% whole wheat bread. And that's the key is that in the same way that why don't we breed a squash that actually tastes good? Why don't we breed a wheat for whole wheat bread? So we're, we want to all eat more whole wheat bread and we're told to eat more whole wheat bread by just about everybody, except we're not breeding for whole wheat bread. We're breeding for white bread. And so and then we, we make sacrifices by trying to create whole wheat bread from that. And, it's a, and when you taste something like this, you realize if we started with the premise of whole wheat bread, we might end up with a much better product. So there's very little magic in here in the culinary realm. There's a lot of magic, there's a lot of uh, uh, work done from the, from the seed uh, forward. And I wanted to just, not only is it so, I think, delicious, but we're now putting it through tests with some of the most modern technology available to us, give us a snapshot of the nutrition. Now, the, the nutrition, there's two ways, there's many ways to test the nutrition, but two one conventional way, one way that we're going about it. One conventional way is to line up barber wheat next to conventional wheat and say, oh, it's got this much micro, more micronutrients and vitamins, et cetera. But another way to test it is to test it in real, uh, with, with where the rubber hits the road, which is in bread. And so we are doing these tests with, with conventional white flour breads versus 100% whole wheat bread. And what ends up happening is the activation of the nutrients in the bread making is where this all becomes available for our bodies. And so it's just amazing to, to test what happens when you put this kind of whole wheat through the rigors of baking, which is the fermentation process. And all of that uh, nutrition becomes available to us in a way that, that would otherwise escape us if we were trying to use the whole wheat through the wonder breadification of the, of the packaged bread world. So this isn't just to say that it's about seed breeders and we can all eat better and, and, and live healthier lives. It's also about how do we make this bread? How do we turn this in? But but if we start with, if we challenge the breeder to make the kind of seed, that the kind of end result, which is whole wheat bread, we start with the seed and we have a much better shot at doing something that is both profoundly, I think, more delicious and, and nutritious. I also wanted to mention that uh, it's kissing, it's, it's parent line that Aragon 3 I mentioned, very old heirloom variety. Those heirloom varieties in our system generally yield per acre about 
30 bags, 30 bushels, bags of wheat an acre. Uh, and last year, barber wheat averaged 95 bags of wheat an acre. So this whole idea that to get the flavor that you're tasting and the nutrition that I'm, I'm explaining that we have to cut down on yield and give up on it and it's for the you know, 1%, it's for the elites, is, is crazy. It is, it is a totally mixed message. I mean, uh, the false message, the false, false uh, dichotomy to, to have nutrition, you need lower yield. It's not true, especially in the grains is what I'm finding through the work is that you can have very equivalent, equivalent yields and in fact, Im improve the yields and have the same kind of nutrition, but you have to breed for it. And we, we, we did this together with no money at all and very little time. He did this as a side project in the same way we did this. What if we, I was just recently on a panel with a Monsanto executive who said, I spend, we, we spend a million dollars a day on corn research. And he was boasting about that. I just, I, I had to, I had to uh, put back a laugh. A million dollars a day for what? For what? I mean, what if we spent $10,000 a day on this weed? We, what would we have in terms of yield? We'd far surpass it. So this was the impetus for starting this company, Row 7, because I wanted the money to invest with these breeders. And, and, and as Michael Mazurik, our, our squash breeder, says, we don't have a yield gap. We have an investment gap. And, and we need the right investment for the, for the product that we want. And we will get there. But we, we need to catch up. So that's the... That's the impetus here. The, another seed that I'm particularly proud of, excited for, is this, this one we've been working on for 10 years with a, a breeder in Wisconsin by the name of Erwin Goldman, who's um, a very brilliant uh, beet breeder, but also very sensitive to uh, uh, not being liked as a breeder by his children because children hated beets. And he found that just so frustrating that they that the, the thing he devoted his life to his children couldn't wouldn't eat. So he he went about trying to breed something that kids would love, his kids specifically. And in the research, he discovered that what kids are very sensitive to is a this cluster of compounds called called geosmin uh, that he identified, and they are very relatable to to sort of tannic to, to earthy compounds. Now. Children especially are very sensitive to it in the same way they're sensitive to sort of the, the earthy red, red lines and, and so on. And as we, as we get older, we, we grow out of that, thankfully. Um, but many of us don't when it comes to beets. Anyway, he, he selected against the geosmin and he created a uh, beet that is as sweet as uh, the sweetest carrot you've ever had, but with beet flavor. It's simply jaw-droppingly delicious. And we eat it raw. It's bread to be eaten raw. Um, and we serve it at the restaurant, just sliced raw uh, on the plate with just a tiny bit of salt. It's, it's, it's a really amazing experience. Um, and it's a gateway drug for people who don't like beets. <laughs> and there, uh, there's another breeder at Cornell University that I've, I've become quite close with who Walter DeJong, who uh, is very famous for bagged potato chips. <clears throat> On the East Coast, if you've eaten potato chips, you've eaten something that this man, Walter DeJong, has, has bred. Um, and he's so famous for breeding uh, productive potatoes and potatoes that don't, your worth as a potato breeder apparently is that you, you have like less, crack, less cracked potatoes in the bags. Um, so that's his fame is that he, he can keep the potato whole in the, in the potato chip bag. At any rate, 
he didn't want to uh, retire with that as his um, biggest achievement in life. <clears throat> and he's, he did a backyard project, which he very shyly introduced to me many years ago, uh, because he felt so frustrated by the russet potato, that the russet <coughs> potato is the de facto potato for our, for our, for our table potato. He just thinks it's an insult to the potato, uh, and the idea that to that the idea that you need to add sour cream and butter and bacon bits to make something taste good just to him just seems so crazy, and so he went about breeding a potato that that you do not need butter or sour cream or bacon bits that this is meant to be just boiled simply, and, and the creaminess for which he was selecting for is astounding. It is like nothing I've ever tasted. I'm I'm here to tell you that. I've been to Peru and France in search of the greatest potatoes um, in my career, and I tasted some of the most famous potatoes from uh, hundreds of years ago that have been passed down through generations. And I have not tasted something that is as creamy as as this potato. It's hard to rank potatoes as the very best one, but as creamy and as rich and as delicious and as not needing a drop of fat in it to deliver on, on an experience that you rarely get in a potato. The interesting part about it is that we ended up calling it upstate abundance. And he, he, he was particular about this because when you turn the potatoes over in the, in the row, it's astounding the amount of potato per square foot. I mean, it's, it's, it's as if manna from heaven. And it blows, from a yield perspective, blows any potato that any farmer in the Northeast is growing right now, even ones that have been worked on for 30 years and have had millions of dollars behind it. So it's a, a, yet another example that this idea that astounding flavor and yield have to be at opposite ends, and, and they're not. Uh, and then there's a, a, a breeder that we're working quite closely with, Bill Tracy, at the, also at University of Wisconsin, who's a sweet corn breeder and is completely, uh, just like Walter, um, uh, disgusted with where sweet corn has gone in, in the last 30 years, from, from sweet to sweeter to sweetest to super duper sweet to another level right now where actually it sits on the shelves and converts starches more to sugars. Whereas you, we all know in the 70s when I remember corn as a kid, you'd pick it from the stock and you'd run to the boiling water to get it because that's how you preserve the sweetness. In fact, they've engineered it so that now when you pick it off the stock, it just gets sweeter as it sits on the shelves. This is astounding. But it's all sugar and has no corn flavor. And for chefs, this is something that uh, is is troubling, uh, if not annoying, to 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 be cooking with corn that is sugar pellets. Uh, and so he finds that offensive, and he's gone back to older varieties of corn uh, that have great nutrition that are still sweet corn. He reminds me always that sweet corn was a genetic mutation 400 years ago uh, that that developed uh, very near, actually, to Stonebarns, a couple hundred miles from Stonebarns, was, was recognized by um, an indigenous somebody and, and put a fence around, and, and, and from there we get sweet corn. But And that was called dessert corn, and it was not bracingly, cloyingly sweet. It was just delicious to eat raw instead of stored. And so he's, we're trying together to get back to breeding some varieties that taste corn first with a little bit of sweetness uh, as well. And, you know, this is a big cultural shift because the culture has gone towards the, towards the super sweet and we need to refine that. And, and as chefs, that's sort of our role to, to help create a culture around the kind of corn that has actually corn flavor and not to mention a lot more nutrition. So it's a very exciting project, but it's, a, it's the long game as these all are because it's about... Uh, shifting the culture, whereas the squash, I think, is pretty immediate in the in the sweetness anyway department. You get, you you look like a better chef without even trying, which is the point. With this, you need to 
do some work, but that's also part of the, the DNA of the company. I wanted to come back just to Salinas to end this, and then we're going to open this to, to a discussion. Uh, but I was out in Salinas to visit a guy who I've just been so struck on talking to on the phone. Um, and he um, is somebody who was a Monsanto breeder uh, for, for many, many years, Bill, Bill Waycott. Uh, and he is now 70 plus years old. He retired from Monsanto. And instead of um, giving up breeding work, he decided to, well, actually, he, he left Monsanto and he retired. And he, he told me on the phone that I went to bed one night and I told my wife, that's it. I'm just done with it. I, I can't stand this anymore. I'm, I'm out. And the next morning I woke up and I, for some reason, I was filled with energy and I realized I'm not tired of breeding lettuce. I'm tired of Monsanto doing stupid things. And I said, oh, God, it sounds familiar. And so I went out and he really is the Jane Jacobs of this story because in the midst of the belly of the beast in Salinas where it is 99.999% romaine and, and, and iceberg lettuce with zero flavor and zero nutrition shipping water all across the country and, and all across the world, he's got this tiny little pocket uh, of fields that are bred for nutrition. Uh, and flavor. Now the flavor is is more more bitter than we expect from romaine and iceberg. It's infinitely more interesting, obviously. But uh, the nutrition is amazing, and what you're looking at is a romaine that's bred for high anthocyanins, uh, that are the the, the purple variety. Uh, bitter is too strong a word, but interesting would be the way to put it. And I, he's doing some wild stuff. This is me in the field with uh, a romaine lettuce that's been bred to resemble spinach. With the hope that it would, it would first of all, the so so it's green, so it gets all the photosynthesis and nutrition about ten thousand times what you would get from romaine. That's no no question. But the but it's, it's sort of a cultural thing. Is like, can we introduce romaine more? Can we romaine is romaine to people. So if you start doing you know greener photosynthesized romaine with a lot more nutrition and bitterness, it's like, well, that's not romaine. That's not what I expect. So creatively he's come up with this idea of like well let's get in through another door and spinach is so popular what if we had a spinach it was just spinach salad you're not supposed to cook it but it's really romaine it just looks it, it has been selected to look like spinach so it's a little bit of a jiu-jitsu but uh, but it's very interesting and no one as I mentioned in the earlier preamble speech was nobody uh, in the packing industry wants to touch it and if nobody in the packing industry wants to touch it, nobody in the seed, nobody in the seed industry wants to touch it, nobody on the processing industry, nobody on distribution, it all falls into line. And so it doesn't stand a chance. So that we're trying to champion, champion him through this kind of lettuce and create a, a market for it, which will pull the demand to make it crate up and then ship. Uh, so it's a, it's a long game. But again, I think this is the spirit of, you know, of, of, of chefs and people who are interested in food like you and organizations like this alliance because a lot of this is is the chicken and egg is to, you know we we have breed i said we have to start with seed but also on the other end we have to create the culture that that invests in seeds not just invests from from the financial point of view but in in the conversation because these are there are so many breeders out there as i'm learning just in the last two years that are interested in 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 satisfying a changed food system and, and this market but they don't they don't nobody's asking them to, to do this kind of stuff uh, and so our job, I think our job, and I, I point to chefs specifically because we're sort of curators for this thing and we are, we have this broadcasting power now that, that I, befuddles me, but here we are as I'm standing up and talking to you in front of heroes like 
like um, Glenn Roberts in the back there. Uh, but the, these these moments are, or these these opportunities shouldn't get lost. And 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 as I've studied this, nothing changes unless the seed changed. Because if you don't change the seed, you can you you can want more flavor, want more nutrition, want you know better access. But if you're not starting with the breeding and selection work, then you're the cake is baked. It's it's true, and you're 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 done. So I I have started this company with the point of doing the work that we should be doing, all of us, is, is changing the culture, but starting it with the opportunity to introduce this to the culture in a way that's accessible. In, in the same way it's, it's, as it's craveable. Craveable, accessible. It should be the same thing. Uh, and, and, and stressing and continuing to prove that the dichotomy between yield and, and, and price and yield and flavor is just crazy talk. And that I want to point that out again and again, that this is not the preciousness 1% who has the opportunity and the luxury to eat well, this should be available to Walmart and Costco, which is where this is going. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day.